Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Academic Life Channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Dana Malone. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Lisa Nunn about her newly released book, College Belonging, How First-Year and First-Generation Students Navigate Campus Life. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're um, so excited to have you today. Um, Lisa, I, I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a sociologist, and I work at the University of San Diego. And let's see, what else about me? Um, Well, let's start with my work, I guess. Um, I am an organizations scholar and an identity scholar. And what that means for the work we're going to talk about today is that I look at the way that schools as organizations, as institutions, shape the way that in particular students, shape the way that students come to see themselves. And and so that's the identity piece. And the way that students navigate through life after um, high school or after college, but also navigate life within the school itself. Um, So it's the way that organizations shape and influence our lives and even shape and influence who we are, who we think we want to become, all of those things. So that's the kind of work that I do. And yeah, I am not, you know, I am not a sociologist 24 seven. Well, I guess I am a sociologist 24 seven, mm-hmm. but I have other things in my life that I like to do too. Um, I'm a big hiker and backpacker. And um, during the pandemic, I have also become an avid TV watcher. Um, that's a little <laughs> bit new for me, but I, I have to say I'm settling into the, the world of pandemic TV quite all right. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, thank you. Well, and it's a good thing. So you're in California. The hiking there is um, phenomenal. I do it's, know. I, I've, yeah, it's not bad. I, yeah, it's it's <laughs> lovely. So I'm on the East Coast, and I got to do mm. to do a, my first um, trip a few years ago, and I've gone a few times since out there and and do and have done some great hiking and um, outdoor exploring out there. Yeah. And it was it was amazing. So the redwoods and all of that. Was, oh was yeah, lovely. a good choice. Yeah, so you're in a, you're in a good spot for sure. Um, so if you could um, talk to us a bit about what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, so um, my my very first book coming out of that was based on my dissertation work as I was finishing up or working on my PhD, finishing up that project. That was all about high school students, and so that really got me interested in thinking about like, okay, so I've been thinking a lot about and talking to a lot of high school students and kind of, um, you know, uh, writing about their trajectories into the world of higher education. I just really was, you know, curious. So what happens when these students get to college? What What's it like for them? Students from different kinds of high schools, students from different kinds of family backgrounds. What's it like when they get here? Um, and it took a while for me to kind of settle on exactly what the focus of the project would be, but belonging seemed such seemed like such an important piece. And um, yeah, uh, the question is, what inspired me? I don't know. There's something about belonging that is so fundamental to all of our lives, and and it feels like. Um, yeah, it felt like that was the the linchpin of whether or not someone's college experience was going to feel good. Well, you know, whether you get good grades or you actually graduate on time or if you transfer schools, all of those kinds of outcomes are important and they and they matter, but there's something else there there. And belonging seemed like the avenue to really get at not just outcomes for students like GPAs and graduation rates, but experiences for students, the way they live and breathe and know themselves through the years on a college campus. Hmm. Um, Can you give us a, I know this, I know this is a hard question, but um, the best you can, can you give us a synopsis of the book for those who um, are not familiar or haven't read it yet, um, just as a way to kind of get into the conversation a bit more? Yeah. Let's see. So 
I compare first-generation college students. So these are students who do not have a parent, neither parent has completed a four-year college degree. So first-generation college students, and I compare them to continuing-generation college students. So those are students who do have one or both parents, um, or whoever raised you. It doesn't have to be your parents, whoever's um, involved raising you, um, that they do have a college degree, a four-year college degree. So... Um, I'm looking at the differences in the experiences between first-gen students and continuing-gen students, and I'm looking at them on two different campuses. So there are a lot of comparison points in the text, but what the book is about is about the way that students um, in their first year, and I follow them through their first two years, the same students. So it's about the way that students experience belonging or don't experience belonging. And what I find in the book is that students think about and experience belonging really in three distinct realms. So there's social belonging, which is the kind of belonging that I think most of us think about when we hear the word belonging and we, you know, this is the kind of everyday um, understanding of belonging, social belonging. These are your friends. These are your people. This is your your team or your club. This is the place where you feel at home. You might describe these folks as a second family, and you know they really make you feel like um, you're wonderful and you can do anything. And you know um, if you've got those people in your life, then you have a sense of belonging. But what I find is that that's really only one realm for college students. There's another academic. Um, realm. So what I call academic belonging, and that's feeling good and competent in your classes. And there's also campus community belonging. Students talk differently about when they're with their friends versus when they're just kind of like moving through campus and going to events. And um, so Boy, this wasn't the quick speech, was it? Um, That's so okay. Are- you're, you're really you're 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 answering a lot of the questions I was going to start with. So this is perfect. This is okay. perfect. Good. Okay, we can build on any part of this later. But so we've got <laughs> these three realms of belonging, and then I also find that belonging isn't this thing like a lot of the scholarship and a kind of everyday sensibilities about belonging is that, you know, students get to campus and they have to work a little bit and, you know, find their people and, you know, um, but once they get some belonging, then over time, they can just get more and more and more. They'll just get more and more comfortable, feel more and more at home, um, strengthen their sense of belonging more and more over time. And that is not what the students describe to me in these interviews. It, there's ups and downs. There's twists and turns. Um, it's, this, it's not at all static, and it's not at all on an upward trajectory only. There's a lot of bumps. And so the book is about how to understand what students' experiences are and what we, as members of the campus community what we can do to foster stronger sense of belonging for students. That's, that's great. Thank you. Uh, um, as a part of the research design, you know, you talk about in the book um, how you asked students, you allowed students to define for themselves their, their ethno-racial identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only did you do that, what was um, something that stood out to me in reading the book was that you didn't just ask them to do that and then, you know, shorthand that as you were writing it up in within the book, but you actually used each time that you referenced a particular student or participant, you use their actual words. And it might've been like a sentence long of how they <laughs> described themselves ethno-racially, um, their identities. And, and um, I, I really appreciated that. I thought it was really um, an interesting and, and, uh, beautiful way to honor um, students, and and um, so, and in the in the in the back in the in the appendix on the research appendix, you mm-hmm. kind of talk about like you know, sorry if this is cumbersome. I hope you'll indulge, <laughs> right? Like some of the cumbersomeness of it, in the writing. Um, do you want to talk about why that was so important yeah. for you and and your because that's a commitment throughout an entire book to do that yeah. every time you mention a student um, to to do that. Yeah. Um. Well, first of all, thank you for saying that that it worked for you and it was something that you appreciated. You you nailed it. All of the things that you just said, um, it it was an attempt to honor students' 
own identities, their own understandings of themselves. And um, it's interesting. So I interviewed the same students three times for in the very beginning of their um, college life. So in their first semester, and then at the end of their first year, and then at the end of their second year. So I just asked a very open-ended question, like, you know, it was some, something along the lines of how do you personally identify, you know, ethno-racially? Because we had been talking in the interview about diversity on campus and if they thought there was enough or not enough, all this stuff. And then I asked them how they identify. And it was apparent really early in that first interview that I, it was going to be really hard to squeeze students descriptions of themselves into the, you know, the, the typical boxes on forms that we usually use. So I was thinking hard about this from the very beginning, but also by the end of the process, right, after talking with them at the end of their second year, I noticed that for some students, the way that they talked about their ethnic and racial identities had changed. They shifted over time. Um, and this is important and interesting and, and fascinating. And um, well, let me just give listeners a, a sense of what we're talking about here. So um, I've got the book open and Lucia is a student who um, is on this page I happen to open to, but she's got a great example. So she describes her ethno-racial identity as I have African ancestors, I have Spanish ancestors, and indigenous Native American ancestors. So it's not as easy to just say, oh, I'm just this. I'm all three. I'm both. I'm a Black Cuban. I'm an Afro-Latina. So if I collapse that into Lucia, comma, a multiracial student, comma, you, you lose so much about who, who she is and, and how how proud she is of her heritage. So I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I really looked for other models out there um, of folks who were doing this work and there aren't that, or, or folks who are doing this description this way. And there aren't that many. And I do feel bad. It's, it is cumbersome to read, but I think once you start reading, you get the hang of it and it brings it brings the students, not just their identity, but how they feel about their identity into the conversation. Um, so yeah. yeah, I just decided this is how I'm doing it. And uh, well, readers I, will I, just have to forgive me. <laughs> and I, I don't think that's a hard thing, a hard ask. I, I, and I'm glad to hear you say that, that you did not find a lot of examples of that because in, in, it, it stood out to me because I thought, I don't think I've come across this before. And it was, and, and, and hopefully it will now be a model for how to do that. Um, uh, and especially when you're writing about ethno-racial identity, I mean, that's the key piece of what mm -hmm. your, your work is about. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a key piece to, to the story, to their story, which is the story, the larger story. So, um, so yeah, so I, I did appreciate that. Thank you for kind of, um, letting us into your process a little bit. Um, yeah. I love hearing about process and, and that is a, that's a hard decision. Those, those are all, I mean, every piece to it is, is a decision that you make as what, as to what ends up being in the book and, and how you frame things. Um, so you draw on the work of Emile Durkheim to frame your understanding of belonging throughout the book. Could you talk a bit about how you use his conceptual understanding of belonging to explain how colleges and universities are actually missing the mark when it comes to adequately addressing the belonging needs of students. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, Emile Durkheim is this, we consider him a classic sociological theorist. Um, he wrote in the um, mid and late 1800s, died in the early 1900s. And so these ideas are old, um, but they're very useful and um he, does, he talks a bit about belonging, but it's not like he has a theory of belonging. What he gives us is a theory about how communities work. And so his theory is that a healthy community does two things for its members. First, it integrates its members, which means the community brings every individual member in and weaves them into the fabric of social life. The community makes every person feel like 
Um, they are known, they are seen, they are valued, like the skills and the, you know, the wit and the humor or the whatever it is that you bring to the table. Um, your gifts that you bring are gifts that the community really values and appreciates, right? You're, you're a part of things. So that's, he calls this integration. And the second thing that a healthy community does for its members, he calls regulation. And I think of this, or we can think of it as moral regulation. So a community makes sure that every member knows what's expected of them. What are the rules for our family or family community, right? Or our neighborhood community or our national community, our, our larger society? What are the rules that we live by? What do we believe in? What do we think is right versus wrong? What do we um, understand to be good and valuable hopes and dreams to have and pursue? What are the kinds of activities or behaviors or attitudes that we look down on and we, we encourage each other to avoid and stay away from? Um, what, what's the moral code of our community? So regulation, Durkheim says, happens when the community um, helps every single member clearly understand what's expected of them. And this means, you know, punishing folks who step out of line and bringing them back in. And I don't just mean punishing like, you know, you get put in jail. That's one way to punish a community member who has violated rules, norms, laws, but also, you know, a disapproving look from your mother or from your neighbor is another way to, to regulate, to, to punish, to remind each other all the time what, what the rules of this community are. And Durkheim argues that when a community does that, when it regulates us and when it, um, integrates us when our community does this sufficiently, then we're not vulnerable to feeling lost or alone or adrift. He thinks that those feelings happen when a community fails to integrate and regulate the members. If I have moral confusion over like, what, what should I do? What is this the right thing to do? Or is it like, that means that my community has neglected to really socialize me to understand um, how, you know, what to believe in and how things work. So from this sociological perspective on how communities work, right? And again, this Durkheim makes it very clear, and this is what is so deeply sociological about it, that this work of integration and regulation happen at the part of the community, at the level of the collective. So an individual member, again, who feels lost and alone and unsure where her place is, if anyone cares if she's going to show up tomorrow to the th whatever it is. Um, those feelings happen when the community has failed to integrate and regulate. So from this sociological understanding of how communities work, um, we can really see that belonging happens at the community level. Belonging is something that we feel when we are properly integrated and properly regulated by our communities. Belonging is something that happens when my community makes me feel wanted, when my community makes a place for me, when my community um, makes sure that I know that um, I am one of them. That belonging is not something that an individual person can just run out into the world or into campus life, right? As a first year student, I can't just run out into campus and decide I'm going to belong in this group over here. And I trot on over there and I sit down with the group and I just demand some belonging. That is not how it works. That club, that team, that org, that circle of friends has to extend belonging to me. I can't just go grab it. And I think that that notion that students should be able to just get out there on campus and go find their own belonging, I think that's an attitude or not an attitude, but a, a perspective or an implicit message that campuses really send especially to first-year students. The idea 
of like, welcome to campus. Hey, welcome first year students. There are hundreds of student organizations you can join. Get out there and find the one that's right for you. Get out there and find your niche, find your place. Welcome to campus, get out there. And that, that's not how it works exactly. So I don't know if you have another question here, but I'm just gonna keep talking about this part if, you don't, if that's okay. Well, one of the, well, I was going to say to to build on that, to circle on that, that one of my questions was could for you to talk about why that, and you talk about that in the book, why is find your place? um, Why does that advice work for continuing generation students, but is problematic for first gen students? Great. Nope. That's exactly where I was going. So good. Um, I'm glad we're uh, interested in the same parts of this. (laughs) We we are. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's talk about um, first generation students. They described to me, again, I interviewed them in their very first semester and then at the end of their first year and at the end of their second year. So um, I get, you know, snapshots of um, how they're feeling and what their experiences have been as they're making this transition to college. And a lot, it was very common for first generation college students to talk about finding their place as a real struggle as a a process full of lots of false starts and missteps and joining this club and figuring out that's not the right one for me and this circle of friends and realizing, oh, these aren't actually people that I really want to be around and this place and that place. And it's this process that they they describe like with a heavy voice and sometimes they tear up a little bit remembering these moments of rejection or frustration or disappointment when yet another group turns out to be not the right one to make them feel wanted right they're they're doing the work they're out there scrambling to find their place and it's just not easy And then when continuing generation students talk about this process, it's often, I mean, not always, right? There's variation for both groups of students, but continuing gen students were much more likely to talk about it as pretty straightforward, kind of easy and even effortless for some people. So some students talked about how the first time they set foot on the campus back in their junior year of high school when they were on a college visit, they knew they belonged here. They just, they'd say things like, I just look around. I just look around at the people and the buildings and everything and I just feel at home here. now, of course, again, not every continuing generation student just like pops onto campus and immediately feels this welcoming rush sense of a home and belonging. There is a bit of a process for many, but the process typically wasn't as full of like painful scrambling and rejection as, as first generation students described. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, Continuing generation students, by the name, right, they come from families who have already experienced college and successfully um, made it through uh, at least a four-year degree, if not um, more advanced degrees. And so they have cultural sensibilities that just sort of match the... The cultural sensibilities on a college campus, right? We think about college campuses, or at least the two in my study for sure, as many others, as being white spaces. Continuing gen students are very likely to be white or um, uh, not not white or white and um, from more affluent backgrounds and college campuses sort of reflect that reflect all of those cultural sensibilities. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of vocabulary that we use and the kinds of foods that are in the campus cafes and the kind of music that's playing on the radio in the bookstore and the clothes and the fashion that's in the bookstore. And just everywhere you turn around campus you can see something that feels familiar and at ho- like, like home to you. 
if you're a continuing gen student. And when you're a first gen student, there are fewer of those things. You look around campus or you go into the whatever center and it might all feel new and different and not familiar and not like home. Yeah. Yeah, I know you, I mean, in, in that, for an example, I think also that you talked about in, in the book is talking about just like, you know, manicure, the manicured landscape mm-hmm. of campus, mm-hmm. you know, probably mirrors a lot of continuing gen and, and more affluent students, you know, home mm-hmm. life and the landscape in their neighborhoods or their homes versus, you know, what um, perhaps first gen or, or lower income students might, you know, might be used to. And so again, even just the aesthetic of campus. Um, landscape really is, um, you know, uh, mirrors what, what uh, continuing gen students might be used to. So I know that was a, that was a really um, um, vivid visual, you know, of thinking about that Um, Mm. and, and a very taken for granted aspect. I don't think most people probably think about what, um, you know, uh, cut grass and, and mulched Mm -hmm. beds (laughs) mean, but when we think about those, um, spaces and, and, uh, spatial landscapes, it's, it's important, um, because there's cultural meanings, um, attached to those for, for a lot of people. Um, can you, can you talk a bit about the role of money, including financial aid and, and, and how that plays into students' sense of belonging? Yeah. Um, So, well, let's start with the financial aid piece. So we've got these three realms of belonging, social, campus, community, and academic. Um, And the kinds of things that you and I were just talking about, you were talking about the landscaping of campus, and I'm talking about the food and the cafeteria and the music in the bookstore. Those are elements of um, campus community belonging, for the most part, the way that students describe them. And... um, Another element of campus community belonging for first-gen students, this came up in interviews with first-gen students much more often than continuing-gen students, this idea of the financial aid package being a signal from the university that the university wanted them. A generous financial aid package um, signaled to first-gen students before they even decided where they were going to enroll, this place wants me. This place is like working hard, going out of its way to make sure that I can afford to be there. And um, that was a a very positive and wonderful, um, in the book I describe like the community extending belonging, right? So it's the university extending the gift of belonging to students. Now, this becomes a problem when lower income students get to campus and their family's financial situation changes. And, you know, more than one student had their financial aid package just pulled out from under them. Um, I describe a student who I call Violet in the book who has to transfer because her financial aid package just um, suddenly changed because actually her father started taking on more work um, so that he could have more money to help pay for more of her college. And then that actually undercut um, the package that she had been offered. Like, so her family thought they were doing everything right and doing their best to make sure that she could be in college and stay in college and, you know, have everything that she needed. Um, And it actually destroyed her ability to stay because of the financial aid package. And, you know, she doesn't, the way that she sees it and the way that she feels it is that the university just didn't care about her anymore. She felt like they, of course they could change my path. Of course they could do better. Of course, you know, if they really wanted me here, they, they could figure out a way to, to not have this terrible change happen. And so it felt like rejection for her. So financial aid in that way, um, can really be a, a mechanism through which universities, administrations extend belonging or withdraw or withhold belonging from students in this way. So that's one. And then, you know, how much pocket money you have plays a big role in whether or not you can participate in the kinds of activities that one social one um, social circle might be interested in doing, right? The kinds of things they want to do on the weekend 
might be things that you can't afford. And so you are, are not going to feel a sense of social belonging, or at least it's going to be diminished, a sense of social belonging with that circle of friends if you can never do the kinds of things they can do. And I, I found that when students talked about these kinds of awkward experiences where they couldn't afford to go out to dinner, for example, or couldn't afford to um, go get their nails done or whatever their um, dorm mates were doing. They, they often described it, you know, they're embarrassed. It's embarrassing. And I know this from my own experience as a, um, I was going to say lower income, but I was downright poor as a college student. And I also never told people, oh, I don't have enough money for that. I pretended I was busy or I pretended I had a paper to write or that I had to wake up early for something. I never admitted that the reason I was turning down their invitation to go to dinner or to do the whatever was because I couldn't afford it. That felt shameful to me. And I I heard similar kinds of sentiments from students in my study. So, um, this circle of friends who's inviting you somewhere, they feel like you just don't want to hang out with them, right? So the invitation stopped coming, but maybe you do really want to hang out with them. You just don't have a way to clearly communicate that if they would just do something that was free, <laughs> you could do it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so money plays a role in in all of this, and just briefly on academic belonging, money plays a role there too. Lots of students in my study couldn't afford the books for their classes. Mm-hmm. Now you can do a lot better in a class if you have the book. <laughs> and it really undercuts your ability to feel competent and to do well and confident in your um, academic uh, work and your academic success, if you can afford all the things, let alone like private tutoring or something like this, right? Although campuses have pretty great free tutoring usually. Um, but anyway, money, money can be an obstacle to accessing belonging, um, or it can be like, you know, uh, it can open doors to belonging um, if you have it. So to transition a little bit, um, and I may come back to social belonging and campus community sure. belonging, but since we're, we're starting on academic belonging, there, um, I, I wanted to talk about that and specifically the competence. So you talk about the need for students to feel academically competent mm-hmm. in order to experience academic belonging. Mm-hmm. Things like grades and GPAs are indicators for students of their own competence, right? Um, what yeah. other factors affect academic belonging? Yeah. Um. So it's partly, yeah, grades, but it's also this feeling like you read the text for the homework and you feel like you have no idea what you just read. That um, undercuts a sense of competence, right? And and, uh, it becomes an obstacle to having this academic sense of belonging. And what I try to emphasize in the book is that especially in the first year, uh, it's much more common for first-generation college students to have come from K through 12 educational experiences that just weren't as academically rigorous and what, what just didn't prepare them as well for the demands of college academics as a typical continuing-gen student who, you know, we know that if your parents went to college, they are very likely to be earning a higher salary than if your parents didn't go to college, right? This is one of the reasons we go to college to be qualified for jobs that earn higher salaries. So continuing gen students are much more likely to have gone to excellent K through 12 schools, have done a lot of work to prepare themselves academically for what college um, requires of you. And so with first-gen students um, who are sitting next to their classmates, I was sitting next to continuing-gen classmates, they're, they're just more likely to feel like, oh my gosh, how does everyone here know all this stuff? And I don't know it, right? Maybe I'm taking introduction to chemistry for the first time. It's called introduction, right? This is okay. This is the class for me, introduction to chemistry. But half the people in my class already took chemistry, 
when they were in high school. Maybe it was even an AP chemistry class. And maybe they already know, right, this is a review class for them, at least maybe the first half of the semester. Um, so it has something to, so feeling competent in class has something to do with the um, preparation that you had K through 12 before you walked in the door. And now first gen students really catch up. They do, they, they're amazing. They're incredibly resourceful and self-reliant and dedicated to success. I mean, they really want to make their families proud. They really want to uh, make themselves proud. And, um, but it takes a lot of extra, extra courage and extra effort to, um, um, to do all this work to the best word I'm coming up with at the moment is to catch up, right? To catch up to what college expected them to walk in the door with. And this is part of the problem. College, like I'm a faculty member, I own this as well, right? We faculty, we have this idea about who's in the classroom and what they already know, even in a class called introduction to whatever. And we teach the class often thinking about the people who already took this in high school as AP and already have um, a lot of this stuff under their belt. And we're, we're, not, we're not thinking about the people in the room who genuinely are, are learning these words and ideas and formulas for the very first time. So all of that can undercut a student's sense of competence which is, you know, one of the keys, I think, or, or one of the indicator, if you have, if you feel competent, it's one of the indicators that you it, feel some academic belonging. So you talk about, oh, there's a couple of different, well, I'm trying to think about which way to go here. Well, let's, let's, let's linger with first generation students for a minute here. And, and in the book, and you've mentioned it just now in your response to that to that question, you talk about them in the book as impressively self-reliant. Mm-hmm. Um, you use that term. How does that self-reliance serve as both an asset mm-hmm. as well as a possible hindrance to their academic success and their sense of academic belonging? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Um, okay, so I'm thinking of a student whom I call Marisol in the book, and she... Um, was it chemistry or physics? I don't know. We'll have to go back to the book, but it was some (laughs) very hard science class that she was in um, that I can't remember which one now. But um, so she's in this really hard science class. It's exactly the kind of thing I was just describing. Like everyone in the class seems to already know everything. She's reading the textbook and she's just lost. She just can't. Oh, she, it's nothing is clicking for her. And she's a very smart student. Um, So this is an example of being impressively self-reliant. She remembers that she had heard this story from this one person this one time, and this had worked for her. So she went out and she found a high school version of the textbook. And she starts reading that. And then she's like, oh my gosh, this I understand. This is super clear. And reading the high school version of the textbook side by side with her college version of the textbook, she's able then to really put the pieces together. And now she can follow along with what the professor's doing in class. And she just she just figured out a really great way to... Um, to get up to speed and to tackle this course. Um, so that's what I would count as an example mm-hmm. of being impressively self-reliant. She, but here's, I'll use Marisol again. Um, she also really didn't want to go to office hours. A lot, this is very common sentiment that I heard from first generation students that they're so, they're, well, she, I'll, be specific about her. She was so enamored by many of her professors and, you know, she found them to be so intelligent and so incredible. And she really felt like she wasn't entitled to waste their time. She really felt like she would be bothering them if she went to office hours or approached the professor, maybe after class with a question or a whatever kind of comment. Um, she felt she just didn't feel entitled to that. And so she was determined to figure out all by herself a way to tackle this class without ever bothering the professor. So that is self-reliance 
in a way that I, I think gets in her way a little bit. Eventually she makes it to office hours by the end of her second year, she does go to office hours and she's, um, she feels really good about some of the professors she's gotten to know a little bit, but in that first year when she's really just barely staying afloat, um, and just, you know, she feels sad and she feels terrible about, uh, being such a smart, bright high school student and coming to college and feeling like she's drowning. She doesn't know anything. Everyone is outpacing her. You know, she, she's carrying all this emotion around and perhaps going to office hours would have been a strategy to help, um, help improve, not just in her classes, but also diminish those feelings of frustration and, and sadness and disappointment in herself. Um, but she was darn it, going to do it all by herself. Well, it speaks to, I mean, just, I, I remember that example because I remember just being like, wow, like very impressed. I was just yeah. like, wow, the resourcefulness of, mm-hmm. of that um, strategy for her. Mm-hmm. And um, so I have a background in academic support services. Um, I did a lot of work and taught out of that unit at my university when I was doing my doc work. And, um, and it's amazing to me, you know, to see, you know, the, sh- to go to that length, but, you know, is she taking advantage of the, the other resources, you know, the explicit resources that are offered on campus, you know, um, it just speaks to that, that idea that self, that just really commitment to self-reliance that I'm not Mm -hmm. going to, to bug or bother other people with the fact that I am struggling, um, and need to figure this out. Um, and so, uh, uh, one more question I want to talk about um, because it gets at what you were talking about. Um, and then I want to move on to some of more of the, um, you know, race, uh, um, racial um, dynamics and things yeah. that are going on as well. Um, is this, um, so I'm thinking about the office hours, right. And not going to this, not going to her professor's office hours for two years almost. Right. And, and, but then you talk also about how professors offer academic, um, how they can offer um, academic belonging, but also, you know, what, what students might translate as not extending that. And, and you use, um, the idea that, or the word that came up a lot, I think in your interviews, um, and I've heard it in, in, in my own work in academic um, support services with students care, that -hmm. idea of caring, Mm -hmm. um, and, and deciphering if they think a professor cares or not. And so in some ways, you know, the example you just gave is that student, you know, she didn't go to those office hours to even, you know, give a chance to talk with the professor to, you know, to be able to maybe have them extend that care to her that maybe they couldn't do like in a large lecture. Um, but could you talk a little bit about um, the ways that professors influence student sense of belonging and maybe around that idea of care that, that you talk about in the book? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, students often used care as a way, this this word care, the professor cares about me, he cares about us, he cares about our learning. Um, They often use that word as as a way to describe offering belonging. I think those are exact, I think what you're saying is exactly right. That's one and the same. If If a student is being offered a sense of academic belonging from the professor, the way that the student experiences that is this feeling like, oh, she cares about me. Oh, he cares about our success. So, gosh, there are so many things that we as faculty members can do to do this. So um, some of the advice that I have around this doesn't come in the College Belonging book that we're describing, but in another book that came out of um, the interviews that I, some of the very first interviews that I did with students, and that one's called 33 Simple Strategies for Faculty. And... um, one of the strategies that I recommend in there is to, to switch our um, habits of speech. So like I was describing before, a lot of times we're up in the front of the classroom and we're thinking about delivering the material, even in an introductory class, right, with, with a certain expectation in mind of what students know. And if we could just flip who who we typically think about, and I'm talking about myself, right? It was after this study that I started really examining what I was doing and saying in the front of the class. And um, I needed to flip who I was the most concerned about. 
So if I think about my class and I'm the most concerned about the handful of students in there who have never heard a sociological term before in their life, then I'm going to just, I'm going to teach the exact same material, but I'm going to use different, um, different phrases and different uh, approaches for it, right? So instead of saying like, okay, so here's this term, and I know a lot of us already know what this means, but let me just explain the definition. No, and that that's mean. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't I just say, um, okay, so here's the sociological term. I know some of us in the room are seeing this for the very first time. So let's look at the definition. Same thing. I'm giving mm-hmm. you a term and I'm giving you the definition, but it's this this attitude of expectation that's being communicated in the, the, what I call the habits of speech that we package it in. And one of those, right, I know most of us in the room already know what this means. That signals to the first gen student or whichever student um, uh, has never heard this before, that signals you don't belong here. You, you, don't, you don't know enough. You didn't walk in the door of this classroom knowing enough to really be the, the student that I am teaching to. But if I just flip it and say, I know some of us in the room are seeing this for the very first time, then I'm communicating to you, hey, welcome. Let's learn some sociology together. Hmm. So that was kind of a long example with just one, one tip, but there are, there are more, there's so many other things um, just like that, that we can do to make our students feel seen, to make them feel like we are interested in um, their success. And several students told me like, um, I may never go to your office hour, but I really like it when you say, uh, I mean, not me, right? But they're, they're talking about their professors. They really like it when the professor is like, come to my office hour. Uh, you know, here's what, let me remind you, here's when it is. Let, you know, please come. Even, even though a student might not ever actually plan to go, they, they, uh, many of them said that they just, they like being invited. They, they like mm-hmm. feeling like, um, you know, that they're wanted there. And that's exactly what belonging is, feeling mm. like you're wanted. Mm. Um, that That's a great example. And I, I will note um, that, you know, uh, as, as a part of the way we structure this podcast on the channel, um, Christina and I, we um, always offer in the copy for um, each episode, there are resources. If listeners want to dive deeper into a topic and your book, your other, the book you mentioned, the 33 strategies will be in, um, the resources for this episode. If listeners want to check that out, which I highly recommend it's, it's a phenomenal, um, addition to, um, to any, any instructor, professor, um, to the work that you're doing in the classroom. Um, so I want to switch gears just a little bit. And, um, and say that you write about the impact of small numbers, quote, small numbers, mm. you use that exact phrase, specifically what it's like for students in the ethno-racial minority mm-hmm. to navigate campuses that represent what Wendy Moore calls, quote, white institutional spaces. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that and what it means for students' sense of belonging? Yeah. Um, so a little earlier we were talking about um, – how uh, in the book I use these long, like elaborate self-identifications um, of students describing their own ethno-racial identity. Um, and so I'll just start there for a second. Many white students um, were very uncomfortable naming their whiteness. Um, and not all of them, but it was very common. And this is a reflection, of course, of our wider society. We have a great discomfort um, with with whiteness and with being white. And we white folks often think about race as something that other people have. But um, this, like one student, when I ask how she um, identifies racially, she she didn't she couldn't even say, she like, she rubbed the skin on her arm and like looked at me questioning. And she was like, well, you mean like, and she was rubbing her skin. And I was like, "Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I mean. Um, So I I, I preface this um, because I think this is a uh, important way to help us start thinking about like why there's all this 
tension and weirdness and awkwardness on campuses. Um, the ethno-racial majority students in my in my samples at the two schools were white at both campuses. And in one of the campuses at Public University, the place I'm calling public, um, Asian students are also an ethno-racial majority. So that's um, maybe important to say too. But white and Asian on the one campus students, when they talked about diversity, they talked about wanting, um, wanting diversity. They want a campus, a student body with diversity. They want to meet and interact and be in classes with people who have different backgrounds and different perspectives to share. They want all of that. But the way that they talk about it, they make it really clear that they want that without any kind of tension or awkwardness or fuss. They, they seem to expect um, students of color to be on campus, but to just kind of blend themselves in seamlessly to the, the flow of, of campus culture and campus life, which we know is a, a white set of sensibilities, right? It's, it's white culture. It's white affluent culture, in fact. And the white students, so they're, they're awkward and uncomfortable thinking about their own whiteness and this is part of the, the story of their discomfort when students of color join uh, the Latino Chicano Resource Center, for example, and they're a part of that, or um, maybe the Black Student Union. Um, white ethno-racial majority students broadly, right, including Asian on this uh, public campus, um, they... It makes them uncomfortable. It, it makes them feel excluded. It makes um, every everything feels divisive for no reason, um, is, as some students talked about it. And I draw on Angelina Castagno's concept of how niceness is foundational to whiteness. So being nice as a fundamental piece of white culture. And this idea of niceness is that... Um, we shouldn't do anything that makes anyone else uncomfortable. We shouldn't bring up things that are ugly or displeasing. We should, um, you know, at least put a veneer of niceness and politeness on everything, even if we know that there are, are deeper problems underneath. And white students really talked about diversity this way and um, were really put out that students of color maybe weren't, weren't being a part of campus life in this nice way of not making a fuss, of just blending themselves in. White students never talked about feeling responsible for um, blending in or for making sure that students of color felt um, welcome and at home and, in, and invited into their social circles or their clubs or whatever it was. They expected students of color to do this work and students of color quite accurately felt a sense of alienation and awkwardness and even distrust in, in like the realms of campus community belonging, just moving through campus and you know, um, sort of making small talk with strangers or classmates or whatever, um, there were real obstacles for them. And so I, I point to this bigger cultural environment and, and elements of white culture wanting nice diversity where Folks just blend themselves into white culture and, and yeah, don't, don't ask anyone to do anything differently. And that, that, that's alienating. Hmm. Well, you talk about, um, oh, there's so many things here. Um, my mind is kind of racing. It's to where it's to where it. So you talk about that idea of nice diversity. You talked about it just now and you talk about it in the book and then you talk about, you know, not so nice diversity. And so essentially ethno-racial racial majority students and ethno-racial minority students, the way I read this, are essentially at odds with their ideas about what diversity, quote unquote, diversity is and means. And so you talked about 
So, you know, ethno-racial minority students that everybody, that all students, you know, um, espoused kind of this idea that diversity is good and they they want diversity on their campus. They want to be able to, and, and what it means to be able to, you know, um, make new friends and and have friends from different perspectives and different backgrounds. That was all well and good for everyone. But what that actually meant, and, and you just unpacked very clearly that nice diversity meant, you know, not making any waves and, and keeping everybody, you know, status quo, everything is okay, right? We're okay. We're not making a fuss about anything. But the not so nice diversity that, um, you know, ethno-racial minority students were looking for, um, you you name what that looks like in terms of they were looking for diversity, what the diversity on the campus would do would be to, I think, in finding those relationships, Mm -hmm. then the result would be helping to break down stereotypes, Mm -hmm. to be able to understand another um, more intimately, um, and, and knowing a person in that way, and then understanding what their life experience might be. Um, and that's, that's what the not so quote, not so nice diversity, um, that you talked about the expectations of that. And so the way I read that is that it's really a challenge, um, because their, their ideas of what this, this concept, um, how it's going to be mobilized on campus is, is very different. Yeah. Um, and no, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So did, no. did I read that correctly? Because yeah. that's, 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 that was basically how I was interpreting that. And, and in some ways it's like oil and water, like that's never going to mix, which then prohibits, you know, the, the ability that you talk about, it prohibits campus community belonging until mm-hmm. we get on the same page about not just what, you know, that we want diversity. I think for campuses, this is an important moment and lesson, not just that we want diversity, but how are you going to mobilize it? And what are, what do you hope, what is your intention with it? Is it just to, you know, and I think you cite some research, um, different places throughout the book of kind of this, I, I don't know, have the exact terms, but this idea of like, almost like it's, you know, check your diversity box, right? Like mm-hmm. we're diverse, but what does it really mean? And how do you want it to actually impact the experience of students and the experience of campus in a meaningful, deep way? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so one, one piece of this back to the first part of your question a moment ago is about small numbers, right? So one of the ways that this comes up um, for students, the, the, this oil and water, as you so um, accurately described it, um, pair of perspectives comes up is around small numbers, you know, students of color want to talk about and want to want to change and want to want to think about the fact that people from their um, ethno-racial group are tiny fractions of the student body here, or maybe a decent fraction, but not nearly, you know, representative of um, how large their community is in the um, population of the state or the city or whatever it is, right? So the uh, the underrepresentedness, and there are ugly historical reasons why we still carry this legacy of white dominance on college campuses. Not all of them, but certainly the two in my study, and overwhelmingly in higher ed. Um, and that, that's part of the conversation. That's part of, um, that's part of what it means to have diverse perspectives and to share, you know, um, share life experiences that students of color think is part of having a diverse camp, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, we show up, we sit in the same classrooms, we're here and we share our perspectives. And I want to talk about why only 4% of the student body comes from my background. Like, let's talk about that. And white students like, oh, uh-uh, no, this is a yeesh, woo, ha-ha. <laughs> this doesn't feel, um, it's not the university's fault, right? There's there's this real, um, this real discomfort, um, be, even though, you know, white students also want diversity and they want to share perspectives, but they, they want things that are easier, like I've just been saying, right? Nicer. They, they want to, try the food from the local, not local, but, um, you know, from the home culture of their roommate and enjoy something interesting and nothing, you know, and just leave aside any um, difficult, uncomfortable, ugly, maybe historically implicating aspects of 
the reality of diversity. Um, and so I think the answer here is that in wider U.S. society, but also on college campuses, we need to do more to ask to require majority students, white students, maybe white and Asian, to require them to learn more and to think more and to take more responsibility for making changes that allow for not so nice diversity. At the moment, we really don't ask. I, I'm a white, let me be clear, I'm a white person, so I'm speaking from my own experience as well. We, no one asks me mm. to do more. We, we just expect people of color to do all the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, just to name my, <laughs> I am also um, a white woman, uh, cisgender woman. And um, although I will say after reading your book, I I thought, well, if I had to, you know, I it made me think about all of the ways that um, many people kind of appropriate their racial um, and ethnic backgrounds um, into a, a, a easy and convenient um, check the box. Mm-hmm. Um I, my parents are, you know, children of immigrants. So I'm only second generation in this country, but I identify as white. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot there. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast, yeah. but, um, mm-hmm. but I want to talk about um, you, you, this leads up to what we're talking about here in terms of, um, you know, where does the onus of responsibility lie? Who's being asked to do this work? And you talk about niceness and the goal of social just um, social justice mm-hmm. that they seem compatible, right? But for some students in your study, um, it reveals what you call the hypocrisy of white niceness on college campuses, and that's essentially what I think we're talking about. But so, mm-hmm. could you? Um, I think this is huge, and I, I don't want to leave the conversation without you know talking about this because. Everybody, you know, I feel like social justice is like, an, you know, is the buzzword everybody's using right now, um, and diversity has been around. But what do we actually mean? What? How are we mobilizing this? What are the real implications? And what are the underlying, um, you know, microaggressions or macroaggressions um, of that of of the way that this is playing out on campuses mm-hmm. across across the country? So, um, I mean, obviously today we're just talking about what this looked like within the context of your study, but can you talk about that hypocrisy of white niceness on college campuses? Yeah. um, Yeah. Right along all of these same lines, right? It's, it's this sensibility that um, diversity is a goal and we want it and we want to bring in people from different backgrounds and different lived experiences and different racial identities and different religions. We want all of those things. Um, But we want it only so long as you, folks of color, folks of um, different religious backgrounds, folks of... um, uh, all sorts of identities, right, that are um, desirable in terms of diversity, LGBTQ plus um, folks and uh, the whole gamut. We want you, but only if you play along and mold yourself into white culture, then, then, then we're happy to have you. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're delighted to have you. But if, if, if you're not going to mold yourself, if you're not going to play along, if you're not going to um, behave and talk and interact in such a way that implicitly supports white dominance that exists, that that ignores um, the structural barriers that you overcame and members of your group, perhaps even if you personally didn't have to overcome a whole lot of barriers, but members of, of your group often have to overcome in order to get to college. For example, if you're not going to ignore all that, if you're not going to gloss over the, um, the grit and the dirt and the heartache and the suffering that is part of what diversity has meant, right? What in the United States, what our our long history and our current moment today, what the real experiences are of being from um, a more privileged and a more or a more oppressed group. If you're not going to gloss over all that, then 
then you're, you're not actually welcome. So, yeah. And that's, um, I, I think that's just a huge, um, a huge piece, um, to, to this story of belonging. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, how it plays out on campuses and how it's experienced or not experienced, how it's extended, as you say, or not extended to, um, you know, both first generation students as well as ethno racial minority students on our campuses. So, um, yeah, we're, I know we're over time. I have thoroughly, I have so many more things I would love to talk about. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I do want to say, though, um, at the end, the final chapter of your book, you do offer nine recommendations for campuses. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that. Um, listeners are aware of that. Um, because even if, you know, even if you don't have the time and you won't, you know, read from cover to cover, pick up the book and read the last chapter and the nine recommendations for campuses. And you are clear to say that is obviously not an exhaustive list, but it's, (laughs) but it's a starting point. It really is a starting point for very real ways that we can make changes and start to kind of, um, change the the experience and 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 begin actively extending belonging to to um different groups that perhaps have not felt that previously um and and your work goes a long way and and offers so much um to to get us started um in that in that work in a in a real practical way so i do appreciate the this the just the wonderful scholarship and then also so many of the ways and um, your other book being one too where you are translating that into very practical um, resources for folks on uh, across campus whether that's administration and policy makers and policy you know um, people who are enacting policy as well as for faculty who are in the classroom with students so um, Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show today and talking with us about your new book, College Belonging, How First-Year and First-Generation Students Navigate Campus Life. Dana, thank you. This has been a really, really wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening. Thank you. I'm Dr. Dana Malone. This is The Academic Life, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.